0: Good morning, how are you guys today? It's good to see you. Today we're talking about baptism, and we're gonna hear, you just heard a few minutes ago about Jesus' baptism, and we're also gonna talk about our own baptism. Now, when you hear the word baptism, you think of a church word, something that happens at a baptismal font like this, where we pour water on the head of a person who is a sinner and is being forgiven by God. What you might not know is that in Greek, the word baptism simply means to wash with water. That's what it means, to wash with water. And it's a picture of how God forgives our sins through Jesus. And in baptism, God actually does just that. He washes us clean, not physically. It's not like taking a bath when you're dirty and stinky. It's a bath for our spiritual self. As well. It gets us spiritually clean, forgiven of all of our sins. Which brings an interesting question. Well, why did Jesus get baptized? Because you probably know Jesus didn't have any sins. Jesus didn't need to be spiritually clean, He's always been perfect. So, why in the world did Jesus need to be baptized? And that's actually an interesting question. John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus, had the very same question. He said, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? John knew he was a sinner and Jesus was perfect. John said, I need to be cleansed by you. Why are you coming to me? Well, today we're going to learn just that. A few minutes ago, you heard what God the Father said to Jesus at his baptism. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. In our sermon text, we're going to hear how in our baptism, we are united with Jesus We are connected with him in both his death and in his resurrection. And that might sound very complicated to you. And you might say, well, what in the world does that mean? Today we're going to learn it's a very simple, very beautiful truth. United with Christ in baptism, God says the same thing about you and me that he says about Jesus. Thanks to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, connected to him in baptism, God looks at you, God looks at me, and he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We say, how can that be? How can God say that about me? I'm a sinner, just like you. How can God say that about us? It's all because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. On the cross, he won forgiveness for all of our sins. With his resurrection, he defeated death. And now in baptism, we are connected to Jesus. And that means God loves us. That means God is even pleased with us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for doing everything needed to fulfill all righteousness, to be our perfect savior Even being baptized for us, you yourself did not need to be cleansed, but we do. And now, united with you through our own baptisms, we are treated as you are treated, as dearly loved children who please our Heavenly Father. Help us to better appreciate our baptism today. In your name we pray. Amen. The portion of God's word that we'll focus our attention on for a little while today comes from Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm curious how many of you would feel comfortable using the words quantitative and qualitative in a sentence. I'm guessing some of you would, those of you who really enjoy math, maybe some of you who who use those words in assessment in your business life. But I remember in college when I was learning about quantitative and qualitative research for the very first time, I could not keep the two straight. I kept mixing them up in my mind. I was thinking too hard. One of my professors threw his arm around my shoulder and said, Pete, it's really quite easy. Can you use the word quantity in a sentence? And I said, well, sure. He said, can you use the word quality in a sentence? I said, well, sure. He said, well, there you have it. It's that simple. Quantitative is quantity. Qualitative is quality. If you're filling out one of those surveys to give feedback on some experience of yours, maybe you're familiar with the 1 through 10 approach. 1, it was a horrible, absolutely awful experience. 10, it was the best experience ever, anywhere in between. What is that? That's quantities. How so? Well, at the end, you could see everybody who filled out the survey, you got 10 who had a fantastic experience, a 10. You had 2 who had a pretty horrible experience, a 2. Those are quantities, quantitative. But then, if you get that little white box that says, Tell us your feelings. Use words to tell us about your experience. Well, that's going to tell you a whole lot more about the quality of the experience than a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten can. That's going to tell you more about quality. That's qualitative. Well, what's the point? Why am I bringing this up? Whether you realize it or not. You and I, we are experts at both quantitative and qualitative assessments. We do it all the time. We do it with our sin and with the sin of those around us. How many sins have I committed today? Or how many sins have those around me committed today? How big of sins are they? How much work am I going to have to do to get out of the doghouse? Is this a really big one? Or is this just a little not so big one? We count the quantities of our sin and we assess the quality of our sin all the time. And there's a problem with that. It's all wrong. We do it, but it's not what God would have us do. It shows that we don't really understand what sin is when we assess it that way. When we assess sin in quantity ways and in quality ways, we're really missing the point altogether. We don't understand the problem. And if we don't understand the problem, we will deal with sin poorly. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, Jesus says this, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Out of the heart. Sinful things, sinful actions, sinful words, sinful thoughts, even sinful feelings. They all come from the heart. They are evidence of Of a deeper problem. They are evidence that there's something wrong inside of me. And when I say something I shouldn't say, when I do something I shouldn't do, when I think something or feel something I shouldn't think or feel, I'm merely giving evidence of the problem that's been there from the moment I was conceived. I inherited it from my mom and dad, just like you did from yours. All the way back to Adam and Eve, there has been this condition of sinfulness, long before a sin ever comes out. What we think of as trespasses, transgressions, iniquities, sins, the things that we count and the things that we qualify, they're not really the problem. They're just evidence. Our text is chapter six, which means, of course, there's been a whole lot that's come before this. In Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul has already made the clear case that Jesus is the solution to our problem, that we can't be what God wants us to be and that Jesus was exactly what God wants us to be as a true human being, as a true man, And that he then switched places with us, taking our punishment upon himself on the cross, dying our death, suffering our hell, and then rising from the dead to assure us that we really are at peace with God. In Romans chapter 5 verse 1, he sums all this up with this one beautiful sentence. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Every verb in there is completed. You are justified right now because Christ's work on the cross declared you not guilty. That's a past tense done thing, a courtroom concept. If you have a law broken, a sin, and you've been declared not guilty, What does the sin matter? It doesn't. You've been declared not guilty by the blood of Jesus in God's courtroom. Period. It's over. It's done. We have peace with God. It's done. You can count them up all you want, you can qualify them all you want. You can look at your life and say, Boy, I had fewer sins today. Doesn't matter. You could say, oh, the quality of my sins seem to be of less harmful impact today. Doesn't matter. In Christ, you've been declared not guilty. It's done. As he goes on to explain the fact that we have this peace, he helps us better understand the purpose of the law in the first place. And if you're not familiar with this passage from the end of Romans chapter five, it will surprise you. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It is a true fact that God gave the law, the Old Testament law, so that his people would sin more. And if you haven't heard that concept before, that should mess with your brain a little bit. Wait a minute. God wanted people to sin more? Well, yeah. God wanted his people to transgress more, to break the rules more. Why? Because the transgressions, the sins themselves, aren't really the problem. It's the condition of the heart that's the problem. And the sins are the evidence of the problem. Do you see where God's going with this? He wants his people, you and me included, to know there's a problem. The less rules, the less likely we are to know there's a problem. The more rules, the more likely we are to know there's a problem, because the more likely we are to break the rules. And you know how this works. When you do something good and you feel good about it, that's your conscience saying, good job. Your conscience takes the rules And it compares what you think, say, do, and feel to the rules. And if you do it right, your conscience says, good job, pats you on the back, it says, that was good. But when you do wrong, you feel it. You feel guilty. That's your conscience. Comparing what you think, say, do, and feel to the rules. And there's a lot of them. You did it wrong. You thought it wrong. You said it wrong. You felt it wrong. God wants you to know that the problem is there, that the problem of sin which has been with you from the moment of your conception is real and it is serious and it does not bring about peace with God. It brings the opposite, hell, separation from God. But you're not guilty through the blood of the lamb. You're at peace with God. Right now, not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because of what Jesus did for you. And that's what Romans chapter 6 is all about. Better understanding who I am right now. Who you are right now. You see, the way God would have us deal with sin, it all begins with baptism. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? you might know that that sin-stained heart that we received at conception sticks with us till death. You might also know that when we are brought to faith in Jesus, God puts this new self inside of you, this new creation. And that old self wants nothing to do with God, but that new self wants everything to do with God. The old self doesn't want to do anything God says, but the new self wants to do everything God says. And we often picture this like we're being pulled in two opposite directions because it's true. The sinful nature is always trying to pull us away from God and his will. The new man is always trying to pull us toward God and his will. But what does God say here? Did you catch it? He said, past tense, our old self was crucified with him. He says that in baptism, we have been, past tense, united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. We are united with him right now. And that old self has been crucified. Do you live like it? Do you and I live as though the sinful nature is dead? Do we think that way? Do we talk that way? Do we act that way? Or do we get sucked into the trap of thinking that our striving against the sinful nature, that our battle against the sinful nature, that all of our best efforts to have less sins and of lesser quality that that somehow is gonna help. It doesn't. Your efforts to sin less and your efforts to sin of a lesser impact on others, a lower quality, have nothing to do with it. You have been united with Christ in baptism. United with him in his death And in his resurrection. And in fact, this is amazing. I had forgotten this until I reviewed this text this week. Did you know that the first command from God to the people in Rome has not been read yet? The first command by God to his people in Rome comes in verse 11. The last verse in our text In chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and up to this point in chapter 6, Paul has not yet told the Romans to do anything. Not one thing. Until verse 11. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives He lives to God. And here it is. You ready? In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first command in the entire book of Romans. Do you see? In baptism, you have been united with your Savior, Jesus, the one who died for you after having lived perfectly for you. The one who endured your hell on the cross and mine, the one who defeated sin's greatest consequence, death itself with his resurrection from the dead. You and I, we've been united with him in baptism. And what does that mean for you? It means that your heavenly Father says the exact same thing to you that he said to Jesus at his baptism, you are my son. You are my daughter whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Not I will be someday well pleased. Not I might be well pleased with you someday if you finally get your act together. No. Quantity aside, quality aside, forget all that. You are baptized into Christ. You are united with Christ. You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That's what it means to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You know. That temptation is still there. You know the sinful nature is still there. What does God say about it? He says your sinful nature is dead. Believe it. It's been dealt with. It's been crucified. It does not have control over you any longer. Let that be your motivation. Let that be the thing that drives you. You see, it all starts with baptism. Amen.